The following is a presentation of God Questions Ministries. Limited atonement. Is it biblical? Limited atonement is a phrase that is used to summarize what the Bible teaches about the purpose for Christ's death on the cross and what his life, death, and resurrection accomplished. It is the third letter of the acronym TULIP, which is commonly used to explain what are known as the five points of Calvinism, also known as the doctrines of grace. The doctrine of limited atonement is clearly the most controversial and maybe even the most misunderstood of all the doctrines of grace. Because the name can confuse people and cause them to have wrong ideas about what is meant, some people prefer to use terms like particular redemption, definite redemption, actual atonement, or intentional atonement. These terms correctly focus on the fact that the Bible reveals Jesus' death on the cross was intentional and had definite purpose that it succeeded in accomplishing. Yet, like all the doctrines of grace, what is important is not the name that is assigned to the doctrine, but how accurately the doctrine summarizes what the Bible teaches about the nature and purpose of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. The doctrine of limited atonement affirms that the Bible teaches Christ's atoning work on the cross was done with a definite purpose in mind, to redeem for God a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Revelation 5 verse 9. Jesus died, according to Matthew 1, verse 21, to save his people from their sins. This truth is seen in many passages throughout Scripture. In John 10, verse 15, we see that he lays down his life for the sheep. Who are the sheep? They are the people chosen by God from before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, verse 4. These are the same ones Jesus said were given to him by the Father, in order that he would fulfill the Father's will by losing none of them and by raising all of them up in the last day. John 6, verses 37 through 40. This truth that Jesus came for this specific reason is seen in both the Old and New Testaments. One of the greatest passages on the atonement in the Old Testament is Isaiah chapter 53. In this passage alone, we see that he was stricken for the transgressions of God's people, verse 8, that he would justify many because he shall bear their iniquities, verse 11, and that he indeed bore the sin of many, verse 12. These verses and many others talk about an atonement that was specific in whom it covered, God's people, was substitutionary in nature, he actually bore their sins on the cross, and actually accomplished what God intended it to do, justify many. Clearly, here is a picture of an intentional, definite atonement. Christ died not simply to make justification a possibility, but to actually justify those he died for. He died to save them, not to make them savable. The doctrine of limited atonement also recognizes that the Bible teaches Jesus' death on the cross was a substitutionary atonement for sins. Many theologians use the word vicarious to describe Christ's atonement. This word means acting on behalf of or representing another, and is used to describe something performed or suffered by one person with the results accruing to the benefit or advantage of another. The vicarious atonement of Christ means that he was acting as a representative for a specific group of people, the elect, who would receive a direct benefit, salvation, as the result of his death. This concept is clearly seen in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He, God the Father, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If Jesus actually stood in my place and bore my sin on the cross, as the Bible teaches, then I can never be punished for that sin. In order for Christ's atonement to truly be a substitutionary or vicarious atonement, then it must actually secure a real salvation for all for whom Christ died. If the atonement only makes salvation a possibility, then it cannot be a vicarious atonement. 
If Christ acted as a real and true substitute for those for whom he died, then all for whom he died will be saved. To say that Christ died a vicarious death in the place of all sinners, but that not all sinners will be saved, is a contradiction. Four different words or aspects of the atonement are clearly seen in Scripture, and each one helps us understand the nature and extent of the atonement. These four words are ransom, reconciliation, propitiation, and substitute. These four aspects of Christ's atonement all speak of Christ as having actually accomplished something in His death. A study of these four terms, in their biblical contexts, leads to the obvious conclusion that one cannot hold to a true universal atonement without also requiring universal salvation. If one holds to an unlimited atonement while denying universal salvation, one ends up with a redemption that leaves men not totally free or actually redeemed, a reconciliation that leaves men still estranged from God, a propitiation that leaves men still under the wrath of God, and a substitutionary death that still makes the sinner himself help pay the debt of his sin. All of these aspects of the atoning work of Christ then become nothing more than a possibility that relies upon man to make them a reality. But that is not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that those who are redeemed by Christ are truly free, and their debt has been fully paid. It teaches that those who are reconciled to God are actually reconciled, and the wall of separation that existed between them and God has been torn down. Colossians 2 verse 14. It teaches that Christ's death on the cross was a sacrifice that fully satisfied the wrath of God. It also teaches that Christ was indeed a substitute, a kinsman redeemer, who acted in the place of and on behalf of his people. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, It is finished, John 19 verse 30. And the Greek word translated finished is teleo, which is used to indicate that a debt had been paid in full. And that is exactly what Jesus accomplished on the cross. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Colossians 2 verses 13 and 14. One common misunderstanding about the doctrine of limited atonement is that this view somehow lessens or limits the value of the atonement of Christ. Yet exactly the opposite is true. Limited atonement correctly recognizes that Christ's death was of infinite value and lacking in nothing. In fact, it is of such value that, had God so willed, Christ's death could have saved every member of the human race. Christ would not have had to suffer any more or do anything differently to save every human being who ever lived than he did in securing the salvation of the elect. But that was not God's purpose in sending Christ to the cross. God's purpose in the atonement was that Jesus would secure forever the salvation of those the Father had given to him. Hebrews 7 verse 25. Therefore, while Christ's atonement was limited in its intent or purpose, it was unlimited in its power. Another common misunderstanding about the doctrine of limited atonement is that it somehow lessens or diminishes the love of God for humanity. Yet, again, exactly the opposite is true. Of all the doctrines of grace, the doctrine of limited atonement, when correctly understood, magnifies the love of God. It does not diminish it. Limited atonement reinforces the intensive love of God that is revealed in the Bible. God loves His people with a love that saves them from their sin, as opposed to the love of the unlimited atonement view that sees God's love as being more general in nature. In the unlimited atonement view, He loves everyone in general, but saves no one in particular, and, in fact, leaves the matter of their salvation up to them. 
Which is more loving, a love that actually saves people, or a love that makes salvation possible to those who are dead in trespasses and sins and unable to choose God? One of the main arguments used against limited atonement is that if Christ did not atone for the sins of everybody in the world, and if God only intended to save the elect, how do you explain the numerous biblical passages that indicate the free offer of the gospel to whoever will come? How can God offer salvation to all, including those whom He has not elected or foreordained to be saved? How can we understand the paradox that occurs because the Bible teaches God intends that only the elect will be saved, yet, on the other hand, the Bible also unequivocally declares that God freely and sincerely offers salvation to everyone who will believe? Matthew 11, verse 28. The solution to this paradox is simply an acknowledgement of all that the Bible teaches. 1. The call of the gospel is universal in the sense that anybody that hears it and believes will be saved. 2. Because they are dead in their trespasses and sin, no one will believe the gospel and respond in faith unless God first makes those who are dead in their trespasses and sins alive. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 5. The Bible teaches that whosoever believes will have eternal life and then explains why some believe and some don't. Another argument against limited atonement points to the passages in the Bible that speak of Christ's atonement in a more general or unlimited sense. For example, in 1 John 2, verse 2, John says that Christ is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Likewise, in John 4, verse 42, Jesus is called the Savior of the world, and in John 1, verse 29, is said to take away the sin of the world. Other verses that seem to indicate an unlimited view of the atonement include 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, He died for all. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 6, He gave Himself a ransom for all. Although Matthew 20, verse 28, and Mark 10, verse 45 say, Christ came to give His life a ransom for many. Those who believe in unlimited atonement use such verses to make the point that if Jesus died for all and takes away the sins of the world, then His atonement cannot be limited to only the elect. However, these verses are easily reconciled with the many other verses that support the doctrine of limited atonement simply by recognizing that often the Bible uses the words world or all in a limited sense. They do not automatically mean every individual in the entire world. This is evident when just a few verses are considered. In Luke 2 verse 1, it is recorded that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. In Luke 2 verse 3 says, so all went to be registered, every one to his own city. But clearly, that is not talking about every individual in the whole world. Caesar's decree did not apply to the Japanese, Chinese, or countless other people throughout the world. In the same way, the Pharisees, being dismayed at Jesus' growing popularity, said, Look how the whole world has gone after him. Did every single person in the world follow Jesus? Or was the world limited to a small area of Palestine in which Jesus preached? So it should be readily apparent that the phrase all, or all the world, does not necessarily mean every individual. Understanding that basic fact allows one to consider each of these seemingly universal passages in their context, and when that is done, it becomes apparent that they do not present any conflict with the doctrine of limited atonement. Yet another argument against limited atonement is that it is a hindrance to the preaching of the gospel and to evangelism. Those that use this argument will say that if an evangelist cannot say, Christ died for you, then his effectiveness in presenting the gospel will be limited. Or they will say that if only the elect will be saved, why should the gospel be preached at all? Once again, these objections are easily dealt with. The gospel is to be preached to everyone because it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. 
Romans 1, verse 16, and it is the means that God has ordained by which the elect will be saved. Romans 10, verses 14 through 17. Also, the evangelist does not need to tell the unbeliever that Christ died for your sins, specifically. All he needs to proclaim is that Christ died to pay the penalty for sin and provide a way for sinners to be reconciled to a holy God. Believe in him and you will be saved. The doctrines of grace, and specifically the doctrine of limited atonement, empower evangelism rather than hinder it. Embracing these wonderful biblical truths allows one to boldly and clearly declare the good news of the gospel, knowing that the power is not in our presentation of it, or in the audience's ability to understand it, or desire, or believe it, but instead rests solely upon an all-powerful God who has determined to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Belief in an unlimited atonement, on the other hand, presents many logical and biblical problems. First of all, if the atonement was truly unlimited, then every person would be saved, as all of their sins, including the sin of unbelief, would have been paid for by Christ on the cross. However, such universalism is clearly unbiblical, as the Bible is very clear that not all people are saved or will be saved. Therefore, both the Arminian and Calvinist believe in some sort of limited atonement. The Arminian limits the effectiveness of the atonement in saying that Christ died for all people, but not all people will be saved. His view of the atonement limits its power as it only makes salvation a possibility and does not actually save anyone. On the other hand, the Calvinist limits the intent of the atonement by stating that Christ's atonement was for specific people, the elect, and that it completely secured the salvation of those whom he died for. So all Christians believe in some sort of limited atonement. The question then is not whether the Bible teaches a limited atonement, but how or in what sense the atonement is limited. Is the power of the atonement limited in that it only makes salvation a possibility, or is its power to save unlimited and it actually results in the salvation of those whom God intended to save, the elect or his sheep? Does God do the limiting or does man? Does God's sovereign grace and purpose dictate the ultimate success or failure of the redemptive work of Christ, or does the will of man decide whether God's intentions and purposes will be realized? A major problem with unlimited atonement is that it makes redemption merely a potential or hypothetical act. An unlimited atonement means that Christ's sacrifice is not effectual until the sinner does his part in believing. In this view, the sinner's faith is the determining factor as to whether Christ's atonement actually accomplishes anything. If the doctrine of unlimited atonement is true, then it has Christ dying for people the Father knew would not be saved, and has Christ paying the penalty for the sins of people who would also have to pay the penalty for the same sin. In effect, it makes God unjust. Either God punishes people for the sins that Christ atoned for, or Christ's atonement was somehow lacking in that it does not sufficiently cover all the sins of those for whom he died. The problem with this view becomes even clearer when one considers that at the time Christ died on the cross, there were already sinners that had died who will face the wrath of God in hell for their sin. Logically, it makes no sense for God the Father to have Christ atone for the sins of people who were already suffering the wrath of God for their sin. Where is the justice in punishing Christ for the sins of those that were already being punished for their sins? Again, this shows that an unlimited atonement cannot be a vicarious, substitutionary atonement. Still, another problem with an unlimited view of the atonement is that it demeans the righteousness of God and destroys the grounds of a believer's assurance. An important aspect of a believer's assurance is that God is righteous and that he will not nor cannot punish sin twice. Therefore, the sin that is covered by Christ's blood can never be charged to the sinner's account. Yet that is what a universal atonement leads to, 
Christ is punished for the sins of those that are not saved, and then they are also punished in hell for the same sins. Unlimited Atonement says that while Christ does a great deal to bring salvation to His people, His death on the cross did not actually secure that salvation for anyone. Christ's death is not sufficient in and of itself to save lost people, and in order for His atoning work to be effective, there is a requirement that sinners themselves must meet. That requirement is faith. For man to be saved, he must add faith to Christ's atoning work on the cross. Therefore, the effectiveness of the atonement is limited by man's faith or lack thereof. On the other hand, limited atonement believes that Christ's death and resurrection actually secures the salvation of his people. While God does require faith of his people, Christ's death even paid for the sin of our unbelief, and therefore his death meets all requirements for our salvation and provides everything necessary to secure the salvation of God's people, including the faith to believe. That is true, unconditional love, a salvation that is by grace alone and Christ alone. Christ plus nothing equals salvation, an atonement so sufficient that it secures everything necessary for salvation, including the faith that God gives us to believe, Ephesians 2, verse 8. Limited atonement, like all the doctrines of grace, upholds and glorifies the unity of the triune Godhead as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all work in unison for the purpose of salvation. These doctrines build upon one another. The doctrine of total depravity establishes what the Bible teaches about the spiritual condition of unregenerate man and leaves one with the question, who can be saved? The doctrine of unconditional election then answers the question by declaring God's sovereign choice in choosing to save people despite their depravity and based solely on God's sovereign choice to redeem for himself people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Next, the doctrine of limited atonement explains how God can be perfectly just and yet redeem those sinful people and reconcile them to himself. The only solution to the depravity of man was for God to provide a Redeemer who would act as their substitute and suffer the wrath of God for their sins. He did this in the death of Christ, who, having been crucified, completely and totally canceled out the certificate of death, having nailed it to the cross. That leads to another question. How can a spiritually dead sinner who is hostile to God have faith in the atoning work of Christ on the cross? That's answered by the doctrine of grace that is known as irresistible grace, the I in the acronym TULIP. God Questions Ministry seeks to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by providing biblical answers to today's questions. Online at gotquestions.org.